Welcome to Living the Writing Life podcast. My guest today is award-winning author and Vermont-based farmer, Brad Kessler. Brad is the author of the memoir, Goat Song, as well as two critically acclaimed novels, Lick Creek and Birds in Fall, which won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize for Fiction. His latest novel is North, which I absolutely loved and highly recommend. He's been awarded a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Whiting and the Rome Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and his work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Nation, The Kenyon Review, and Bomb. In today's conversation, Brad and I will discuss how he uses his writing to explore the topics of loss, recovery, and the need for some kind of human connection. So welcome to the show, Brad. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Um, just by way of a little bit of background, how long have you been writing? Basically, when did you start writing? Oh, I started writing when I was a child. I, I think I, I wrote poetry when in elementary school. I was always drawn to the word. Mm-hmm. So many of the writers that I've interviewed have said the same thing, even if they didn't end up staying within that particular type of writing. It just seems like something that in childhood they were drawn to. Um, when you first started writing, I guess I would say professionally, you know, as, as an adult, did you have any kind of a writing dream or a goal? And if you did, has it changed over the years? Um, I don't think I had a, a dream or a goal. I, I, I know it was something that I always was drawn to because it seemed like a, um, a place to think things through and things things out was on the page. And whether that was, uh, I started off, the very first thing I started off was poetry. I think all children, you know, they're drawn naturally to poetry because it's making, uh, you know, nonsense instead of sense, or it's the combining of the, the sense with nonsense and it's rhyme and it's word, word love and word joy. And, um, and then you learn to start to make sense, you know, in grammar school or wherever, you know, you have to write essays with topical sentences. And so I, I um, you know, from nonsense, I started to write sense in terms of, I guess you would call it uh, creative nonfiction, uh, essay writing. It was something that, that I was drawn to. And, and, um, and I ended up by default becoming a journalist because that was the only way you could earn a living really, or that, that, that I knew about. And, um, so I did that for several years in, in magazine, uh, publishing. And at the same time, I, I was writing cryptically, uh, fiction, you know, trying to write, trying to write a novel or exploring with that, exploring what it would be like to write a novel. Um, and I think, um, I, started writing children's stories as a job. It was a, a, uh, an outfit called Rabbit Ears Radio back in the 90s that, that would retell folk tales and then set them to, uh, to with contemporary music and have actors and actresses read them. So for instance, um, they had me do a, a Br'er Rabbit story that Danny Glover read 
and uh, or a, a story of uh, they did a biblical series of Moses story that Ben Kingsley read. Uh, Denzel Washington read one and B.B. King did the music. So that was kind of thrilling. And it was it was learning the, the sort of archetypical archetypical fairy tales and folk tales and how they were put together and how narrative worked. Um, but those were purely, you know, work for hire. And uh, but but they did give me a, a, a kind of foundation about how to go forward with writing a larger work, a literary work, a, a novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, any any type of writing we do, I think, um, teaches us, the more we do it, the more it teaches us about that specific type of writing, even if it's magazine writing or doing, you know, profiles of people, but it, I mean, writing is writing, you know, if you can write a good mm -hmm. profile of a real person and make them come alive, you know, then it doesn't take a whole lot more to use that skill set and make up a person and make them come alive. It's all, it's all just thinking about, about the qualities and, and the specific idiosyncrasies that say, okay, that is that person, you know, the, the really unique aspects. Um, you know, you, you talked about how, how you, you, um, it sort of allowed you to, to play around a little bit with the idea of writing a novel and obviously you've done that. Um, so, and if you will forgive the trite and obvious question, where do you get your ideas for your novels? Where do they come mm. from, from an image, from a phrase? Where does it come from? Uh, yeah, I think all those things. I think it, it, um, it's usually something that I'm an obsession that I'm trying to work through that I don't even know. I know sort of the clothes that it's wearing, but I don't know what the body is. So I just have this very... Uh, intuitive, uh, fleeting idea of what of this place that I want to go to. Almost, almost, it's like a um, a room or a space where uh, I could almost like a sanctuary that I want to create for myself. Uh, whether it's a sanctuary or just an idea that I'm working out, and so um, so it's this obsession around which you know my ideas and words gravitate and pile up and whether that's a character, whether that's a series of characters or it's usually based on place. I mean, place is very important to me. Um, so for example, this, this book North that I, uh, is just coming out, um, I knew that I wanted it to take place in the near future on top of a mountain at a monastery because I happen to live uh, next to a monastery in Vermont. And I was kind of envisioning this time when the world was falling apart and um, people were looking for sanctuary. People were looking for a place to go to. And because I live next to the monks, they're, they're the uh, Carthusian monks uh, who have their only charter house in the US is, is, is right up the mountain from me. Um, because I live, have lived actually for about 20 years now, and I hear their Vesper bells in the evening and I occasionally see them on the road, although they're they're supposedly, um, they're famous for their vows of silence, although of course monks talk. Um, so I knew that I wanted it to take place up there in this kind of timeless, because a monastery is a kind of timeless place. And that's what, especially this order prides itself on um, staying still while the world is changing, they stay still. That's the Carthusian motto. Um, so I wanted to say, well, what is that like to 
inhabit a place like that while the world is changing so radically in terms of its environment and its migrations and its wars and and it's it's uh it's very geology i mean we're in the uh anthropocene now instead of the uh holocene so uh so i i i wanted to set it up there i didn't know exactly what was going to happen but i also knew that with the idea of their sanctuary the idea that monks go to a place uh in, in, into an enclosure, into a safe place, almost a garden of Eden that they enclose themselves in, in order to uh, give their life to God or to praise God or to make themselves perfect um, or to try, try to make themselves perfect. Um, there's the world out, what is, how does the world outside of that enclosure, how do they seek their sanctuary? So um, this idea was that there would be uh, this this monastery and into that world would come a bit of reality, which I thought was going to be in the future when the U.S. closed its borders to migrants and uh, things were falling apart and there was a pandemic. Well, it turned out because I started this book 10 years ago while Obama was the president and things were starting to fall apart back then. But I had no idea that we'd be talking about things like a Muslim ban and closing the borders and things like that. So it turned out that what I envisioned was going to be a novel that was going to take place in, in the near future. Uh, that future had arrived already. And uh, in, in the course of writing this book, not only did that future arrive, but it, now it's in past tense in a sense, or it's in continual present tense where mm -hmm. this crisis has been going on. So the novel actually takes place in 2017, in the spring of 2017. Um, but in a sense, it's an, it's an unresolved story in terms of what's happening in the present. So you said you had started writing it 10 years ago. So when, when was it finished? Like what year was it finished and you were ready to send it off to be published? Um, it was never finished. <laughs> can, I don't know if you could, can you hear me? You were have to edit this part because my internet just said it's unstable. Um, Let's start again. I think it was it was finished, I'd say in 2019 or so, but I needed more time. I mean, it was, let's just say it was sold in 2019, uh, but I felt like I needed more time. I needed another year to really dig down deeper and understand who my characters were more. So I don't know if that answers your question. Satisfying. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, the reason why I was curious is, okay, so if it was sort of finished in, in 2019 and then you worked on it more, then that puts you smack up against the actual pandemic. And, and I was just wondering, while you were doing the edits, the rewrites, the things we all love to do, um, how did what was going on in real time, did that did that affect anything within the story, and did it affect you creatively? Um, yeah, I would say that by the time the pandemic struck, uh, the book was pretty much done. Um, but I will say what what was another contemporary event that that did affect the book was um, the. Um, you know, the George Floyd killing and the Black Lives Matter movement that kind of reignited uh, all of that, all of that 
put a new light and a new impulse into the into um, my into the book. And and before that, the 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 controversy or the realization in the publishing world of how white the publishing world was, um, and 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 anyone paying attention, you know, has known that for 10, 20, 50, 200 years. But I think um, the fact of the American Dirt story and the backlash that that book got made me step back and say, wait a minute, let's look at this. And it's something that I was keenly aware of because I was writing a book, not only about a white Catholic monk and a white uh, Afghani war veteran, I mean, white American Yankee war veteran from Afghanistan, but I was writing about a Somali Muslim woman, you know, an African, a black woman who was a Muslim. So I, I wanted to, and, and it was a concern of mine from the very start. And I felt, how do you do that? How can I, how can I inhabit her world knowing, you know, so little about her world and even with all the research and, and all of the good intentions, you know, what kind of harm am I perpetuating here? So it was just something that I had thought about from the beginning. And when, um, when these, when that American dirt thing came out or when the book came out and there was a backlash against the research that the woman had done and her representation of, uh, you know, Mexican immigrants or Central American immigrants. Um, I had to do a real sort of deep dive and, and see, you know, what are you, what, where's my desires in all, all this and what, where, what, where am I implicated in this scenario that we're all involved in? So how did you, um, because she, you know, the, the details were so compelling. Her, her whole journey uh, from Somalia to ultimately to the monastery. But what really struck me is you, you made her so alive. You had such specific details, not only geographically, but in terms of, of her fears, her personalities. I mean, everything... It was it was so real that it would be like as if you you were using a real person. What are what are some of the things you did to make sure that you were accurately representing? You know, she was serving as as the image for immigrants in in general who were struggling to escape. What did you do to make sure, especially because she's a woman and you're a man? What what did you do to make sure that your um, your representation was was going to be as accurate as you could get it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I guess the the I had a lot of help, and um, you know I write about it a bit in, in the acknowledgement at the end of the book. Um, you know, one was there was um, um, people in there was a man Ahmed Youssef Ismail. In, in Minneapolis who had helped me uh, all along from the very beginning with what I was doing. Uh, and then there was also about halfway into the writing of the book, I, I started visiting the US Committee of Refugees and Immigrants, their, their Vermont office up in Colchester, Vermont. And through them uh, and a man named Abdi Rashid, uh, I got to know the Somali community that had settled there. And it was with, with Abdi Rashid and, and a woman who worked for them named Laurie Stavron, 
who who slowly introduced me to to members of his community, particularly one woman and her and her large family uh, named Fardosa and her son Mohammed, who who um, is in his is mid twenties, and um, and I started going up there and spending time with them, and I started and then and then um, and, and spending each week we would get together and then eventually we would get together on zoom when the pandemic hit and it was through getting to know Fardosa and getting to know her story which is a completely different story um than sorrows but it was more um feeling more comfortable in that community as as an outsider and and i think the community hopefully feeling more comfortable with me uh, and, and we sort of did a kind of exchange, whereas I'm, I'm helping them write their stories now. It's separate from, from this book. I mean, where I'm just, I'm just the kind of ghost writer. Um, because one of the things that's kind of, it, it, one of the things I realized in terms of sanctuary and people that come to this country for asylum, um, is like often that they don't want to look back. They don't want to, to repeat or re reinscribe, or they don't want to, they don't want to tell their story because it's been traumatic. Um, and so with, with Fardosa Muhammad, for example, it was, it was the son that was translating his mother's story of what happened to her in Somalia. And, and he was really astonished by the things that she'd gone through. And, and it was a group of us on, on together. It wasn't just, you know, it, it was me and Lori and uh, sometimes Abdi Rashid, and we would all talk. Um, but it was, I, th I think, I hope it was, um, it was kind of healing in a way for both, you know, the mother and the son, because the son got to hear the story that he had never, he'd never heard it. There's no reason. She didn't want to talk about this stuff, he said. And he was astonished. He said, you know, she never talks about this stuff. And, um, and while a lot of it was difficult, other parts were, you know, kind of joyous and, uh, and nuanced. So it was through that process. And the other thing I did was I, I took a class with um, um, Harvard Pro program in refugee trauma, um, which was a, a it was a continuing education class that Harvard does, and um, it was really a way of understanding the um, physical and emotional uh, gauntlet that refugees have to go through and what they are suffering in terms of mental illness and, and physical illness and just just the the, the whole range of, of possible things that happen and and also sort of you know and through that program I was I was kind of vetting this book as well you know getting getting people's opinion um, seeing if I was on track seeing what I got wrong and and I was getting things wrong all over the place I mean it's it's you really don't know what you don't know, as, as my friend Laurie likes to say, who works with refugees in Vermont, it's you don't know what questions to even ask. So, um, so I think it was more in, in a spirit of listening and trying to be attentive and, and more um, accompaniment, I mean, is the word that, that comes up in the novel. And, and also by addressing it in the novel itself, by addressing the race issue in the novel itself in terms of Christopher, what he, perceives of this black Muslim woman who comes to the monastery, you know, who just shows up out of nowhere. And then, you know, what he doesn't know and has to, has to actually go and find out about her. So it was sort of meeting halfway rather than, you know, um, some sort of cultural um, 
there was cultural humility, I guess, on his part, on the main character's part, and as I hope there was on my part. Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of times, you know, when I when I'm in different writing groups and you talk to people who are working on on different pieces, and they say, oh, you know, it, it'll be like a white author, and she'll say, well. I'm going to bring in, uh, I'm going to bring in a, a black character or, or a, some immigrant, you know, some nationality, just because they say we have to be more inclusive or whatever. So they just sort of bring in a character, but it's, it's sort of a cardboard type character. It's like a stand in, you know, here's my, here's my token black person. Here's my, my token immigrant person. And it really if you're going to do that, if you're going to to bring in characters that are outside of your own lived experience, it's interesting how much effort you put into learning about what they experienced and then spending all that time talking to them. It's it's not something that that a person, if, if you're going to do it well, it's not something a person should attempt to do just by reading a few pieces and thinking, okay, I know all there is to know about an immigrant from Somalia, so I'll just throw a name at them and bring them in. I mean, it, it it's uh, it's quite amazing the amount of work. How did you gain their trust, though? I mean, you're you're a white guy. How did you how did you even gain their trust that they would be willing to tell you some deeply personal and and probably horrific things that they did not even want to recall themselves? Um, I'm not sure I ever did gain their tr people's trust completely, and they have every reason not to trust someone like me um, or any white person for that matter. But I mean, I'm, I'm overstating the I'm overstating the issue. I mean, I think that there's a certain level of intimacy you get when you're around people uh, physically, and um, I mean, one thing was that. One thing that we shared with that I shared with this community was goats, for example. I mean, Somali. I mean, I'm, I'm making a generalization here, but um, a lot of Somali people are, are come from a pastoralist background in terms of that their grandfather or their father or they themselves herded a camel or a goat uh, or a cow, um, and so the fact that I could bring them raw, fresh goat milk from the farm and bring them quite a bit of it. Um, you know, you might say, oh, well, you're bribing them. Well, no, I mean, raw goat milk is really hard to find anywhere. So it was, um, we could share, there was one man that I had a long conversation that that is part of this, this project that we're working on who was a camel herder and for his whole family. And so we were able to talk about milking camels versus milking goats. And we had this whole conversation, um, which was wonderful. So. So there's there it it just sort of took time and and you know again the story the fictional story I tell of Saro was not their story and uh, it, it was more just getting to know a, a little more about the culture and the background mm -hmm. so it wasn't that I was you know using someone's story directly I, I I was just getting to know the community that that are my neighbors really because that's that was the that's what I really wanted to write about these three communities that are all around me, you know, even though I live in a, in, in, in a rural state, in a rural area, my neighbors are, are these monks. I mean, they're, they're stone throw away and they come from all over. 
And then uh, I have neighbors who are old Vermonters, you know, traditional uh, Yankees who, and that's, you know, Teddy, the character Teddy is meant to be, represent him. And, 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 and they're, you know, Teddy's a, a war veteran. He joined the army because it was his only way out of the valley. Uh, he didn't have much, many options. And, and like a lot of working class or, you know, rural based Vermonters, you know, they, there isn't a lot to do. There aren't a lot of jobs here. And, you know, the National Guard or the army is one of the things that they end up doing. And in fact, during the, Af the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, it was Vermonters who paid, paid a pretty heavy price by, I think it was, there, there was more dead and injured Vermonters per capita than any other state. I mean, Vermont, Vermont suffered that the bigger loss. So it was the same thing with the Somalis. They live in Burlington. It's about two hour, hour and a half drive away from here. And um, the fact that they started settling in Vermont and seeking sanctuary in Vermont in the way that the monks had sought sanctuary in Vermont, the, the way that I was seeking sanctuary in Vermont kind of drew us all together, I think. And that's the story I really wanted to tell, a story of you know finding a home or trying to find a home and um, you know, finding your own sanctuary, and if that's even possible anymore. You know, some, sometimes you, you wonder because everything is so tenuous. You know, it's, it's, it's not like we're ever on solid ground anymore. You know, you, you think you are, and then something like the pandemic hits, and it's hard, it's hard to imagine things will ever, in a sense, be stable again you know, with the pandemic, with everything else that happened in the last, what, five, six years. I mean, it's everything. It's not that our country hasn't gone through times of great change, but it certainly seems like we had such an escalation and, and we just went down to, you know, such a bad place in so many ways that it's, it's hard to believe we're ever going to go back to feeling safe and secure. And, and, and maybe that's a good thing. I mean, you know, there's always the question, what right do we have to feel safe and secure when there are people who wake up in the morning and don't know if their children are going to be alive or dead. So, you know, maybe we've been a little, maybe we've been a little too comfortable and now we sort of fate came in and smacked us upside the head and said, here, you know, you've had a pretty easy up till now, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's been really interesting in the whole idea of sanctuary. I know that the image that kept coming to my mind the whole time I was reading North was that the monastery is like this big pool of water, nice and quiet, okay, no waves. And then she comes in and she's a big stone that got thrown into it. And you just see the ripples, mm -hmm. you know, and, and um, you know, it's, it's just, it, it fascinated me. I mean, this, the story was to be honest with you, I could not sit and read it in one sitting. I had to keep stopping and, and allowing breaks because it was so intense and so compelling that I have a tendency to read really fast to get to the end because, and then I go back and it's like, okay, now, now that I know how it ends, now I want to read it again, take my time. And I couldn't do it with this. It would, I would almost like have to process certain parts of it because it was so so well done and so emotional oh, and you're and you're linking it with you know this isn't just a fictional character but there are people every day that are that are going through this uh, I, one thing i was curious about is why did you choose 
a female protagonist to hang the story on? Why, why not a male from Somalia? Um, well, good question. Again, good question. Thank you, Nancy. I, I, I'm, you know, you, you, you hinted at this earlier about my other novel, you know, my first novel, The Creek, which was also from a, um, multiple point of views, but there were the, the, the female was kind of the lead character. Um, and I think that I've just always felt more comfortable writing from the in in the skin of a woman i don't know it's it's um i mean there's there's all sorts of analysis that i might do in terms of gender fluidity and um about why that's the case um but i i do think that for the longest time i didn't understand men as much as i understood women and women and so i or at least i just felt more comfortable writing uh from from a woman's point of view and so I would say the hardest character for me to write here in some ways was, was Teddy, which who is the most, you know, he's a straight white um, male American Yankee. And, and yet he, in some ways he felt the most alien to me. So I don't think there's any rule in terms of novelists or, or artists writing, you know, gender, or, I mean, there's certainly rules about race and there's certainly rules about gender, but I think if you, if you can, if you can empty yourself enough to to do what um, there's a great word called uh, in, interpathy. I think it's written by it's it's a it's a term that David Osberger, who's a sociologist psychiatrist, came up with. And so it's not it's not really empathy because empathy empathy requires a certain skill, but interpathy is, is a different skill that, in, that inquires putting yourself, not putting yourself in someone's shoes. Um, but, and, and this is the, but that I don't have the answer to, I need to find out what interpathy actually means. Um, it's a way of just being open to the experiences of others and quieting your own self. And I think that's, something that's hard to do mm -hmm. and something that uh, I tried to do. And I don't know if I succeeded. So I, I think that that's the way I always felt about writing a female character, even though I'm not a female. Um, I always felt that the vessel that you have to become to write a novel uh, got more readily filled with a female character than a male character. Yeah, and, and in, in so many ways too, because when you when you think of a woman, the carrier of life, and you know, it it I think it worked perfectly to have that be a female because she is not not that she was pregnant, not that point, but in a sense the carrier of life and future. You know, I, I think it I think yeah. it made her a more yeah. effective. Yeah, I think, I mean, on, on a practical level to have three, you know, three men uh, in a novel wouldn't be that interesting. And also to have a male, another man in the monastery wouldn't be that interesting. I mean, the, the, it's heightened. I mean, the, the otherness of this woman to Father Christopher, um, you know, is heightened on every level. I mean, first of all, she's a female. Secondly, she's black. 
thirdly, she's not American. She's not Christian. She's Muslim. So it was hard to get sort of more uh, oppositional in a way or, or opposite. Um, there was something you said. Oh, oh, the other thing is that there's hints throughout about, um, you know, Mary, who in, in Islam is, is known as Miriam. And she being someone who had to go into exile in order, you know, while she had her son. And, um, and it's, some, it's someone who, Sarah, who, who wears a headscarf. I mean, there's a scene where she's in her headscarf and she sees a statue of, of Mary at the monastery. And, and she knows who she is because, you know, Muslims know who Mary is. They know who Jesus is. They know all, our, all the Christian and, and, and Hebrew prophets. They believe in them. So it's not, um, it's a continuity. It's not a uh, strangeness. And, and, and she does wonder why, you know, Mary, that all these white people and everyone throughout Central America and South America worship Mary, uh, but why in North America they worship this woman who's wearing a hijab. And it's kind of, you know, but they don't like people to wear hijab. So it's, she, she's kind of bewildered by that. Um, but I think that was also, I mean, it wasn't conscious, but the thing that you say about her being, you know, the carrier of life and, and sort of, you know, pregnant with life and, and, and the carrier of the future, um, you know, that's, that's certainly in there. And, and, and I think her having this moment with, with um, you know, Mary, the, the statue of Mary uh, gives voice to that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I think a lot of non-writers believe is that, you know, as writers, we're, we're creating the stories, we're creating the plot lines, we're creating the characters. We are in total control, they think. Um, I'd like to have, have your thoughts on that because it, it seems like, at least in my own experience, I might, when I'm working on a piece of fiction, I might think I know where it's going or I might think I know how the character's gonna behave. And then they just go off, in a sense, into a into a, a place or say something that I had no idea they were going to say that. And did you have that experience when you're working on on your fiction, where sometimes you are surprised by what these characters that you've created have suddenly said or done or revealed to you? Yeah. Um... Of course, that's that's when I think we start off as writers, or at least I did as a fiction writer, wanting to have that control, feeling that I had that control over my characters or my figures, putting words in their mouth. Um, and you quickly discover that if you do that, if you foreclose on who they are uh, beforehand, then they become, you know, what Forrester called flat characters. I mean, they, they, they don't, they're not real. They're not real to you and they're not real to the reader. So you do have to let them have their own growth. They're like children <laughs> where, you know, if you say, well, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a proctologist, you're going to be a proctologist. And then, you know, Johnny grows up and wants to be a sculptor, you know, or a dancer. Um, they're going to rebel on you. And that's when, that's when they get interesting. Uh, and you've probably had this experience as a writer. It's, it's like when they do something you don't expect when a character does something they don't expect, that's when the writing gets good and interesting. And you kind of hope that's going to happen. And I think part of the problem I had with, with Saro's character at the beginning of this is that I had done so much research, I had done everything. I had basically um, 
created this character that had no and put her in, in a body cast and had no she had no room for growth and it was my idea I, I was just my idea of who she was and in the sense of my idea of who an immigrant was or who a Muslim woman was or who a Somali was and it was, so it was only uh, after time that I realized um, that I had to that she had to emerge kind of on her own and with the help of, of this community I couldn't really write her without the help of 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 a of a community and which which brought brings up the idea that I had never really encountered truly before or at least maybe ever acknowledged before which is that this idea of single authorship I think it might be an old idea that you know the great woman or man alone in the room inventing these their 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 great novels it doesn't really happen that way or it certainly didn't here I mean I it, it does take other people, other sources um, to, especially if you're gonna write across cultures, or if you're not just going to write about, you know, your own body and your own experience, that it does require work. And I think with all my books, I've done that work, but quietly, I think, and not, and, and not so actively seeking help because at some point in this book, I, I just, I had to put it aside. I couldn't go, I realized you don't know what you're doing. And, and, and it was a point where I had actually submitted it to, to my editor at the time, um, who is no longer my editor, but, um, and it was rejected. And I thought, well, something's wrong. You know, you're doing something wrong here. And it was really, um, it was really that piece among other things. It was really that piece of, of trying to do it all myself without, without any help. And, and, and then the, necess the necessity of engaging in community. I, I find that interesting because some people at that point would say, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. My editor just rejected it. I'm just going to put it in a box somewhere and, and not deal with it. What kept you going on it? How, how, yeah, because that, that is very disheartening. You put a lot of time and effort and, and to have somebody say, nope, don't want it. I mean, how, how were you able to, to continue on and have confidence in, even if it wasn't necessarily confidence in your own ability, but confidence in the, in the story idea that you wanted to create? How, how, did you, how did you get over that hump? Because I see that time and again, you know, when I talk to other authors, it's, it, we all face it. And, and I think the difference is some of us, can get past it and some of us give up. So what did you, how did you keep going? Well, I, th I think the cure, the solution was the cure. Am I saying the same thing? What I mean by that is that in order to keep going, I needed to reach out beyond myself. And I was so used to this sort of sense of autonomy, the author's autonomous and the author is this and that. And, and you know, you do it on your own. Um, my wife is someone who works in community. She's a photographer. Uh, she's always worked in community. It's part of her. She's an activist. Um, I always considered myself a contemplative. And so this is, the, this is something that comes up in the talk of the monastery where you have your contemplatives, the monks, and you have your activists who go out in the world and, you know, heal people with their hands or their, you know, blood or whatever it is that they're doing in wartime or on the front lines. Um, and that dynamic between contemplative and activist is something that is a theme throughout North. You know, when do you when do you actually have to step up and show up and be an activist? And it's something that, you know, Father 
Father Christopher in this book has to deal with as, as a contemplative monk is that he has to actually change. He has to hide this woman. He has to do something against the law, against what some of the brothers want to do and hide this, this immigrant. So I think that arc of his story kind of mirrored what, what I went through in the course of writing this book and sort of mirrored what I think a lot of people went through during the Trump years, which was, yeah, you could write about, you, you know, you could talk until you're blue in the face about social justice and about immigrants, but unless you actually do something, you're just talking. So it was at the point where this book was rejected. Um, and I knew why I knew that I knew that I had to figure out more about this person, this mm -hmm. character that I got more deeply involved with the community in Burlington. And that helped me write the book, but, but to answer your question, it also helped me, it gave me a reason to keep writing because I, it was no longer about me. It was about them. And at one point uh, during the American dirt thing that came up and I went to, you know, the community and went to, well, Abdul Rashid. And I said, look, we might not publish, I might not publish this book. You know, you, you know, you've helped me so much. And, and he said, what, because this thing happens to this part of the world, to this person, this happens to you. No, you have to tell the story. I mean, this is what, this is what we've been going through. Um, you have to, you know, he basically gave me marching orders that, um, you know, it wasn't about me anymore. It was about this, this larger thing. And so it, it kind of, um, that's, I think, what, why I kept on wanting to do it and why I continue to work with them and have this other project that we're working on. And I think that's, that's the best reason for writing. I mean, it's all well and good to say, I'm, I'm going to publish books because I want to earn money from them always a nice fantasy. Um, it's, it's always, you know, or to say, oh, I want to be famous or get awards or whatever. But when you've got like a higher reason, I think that also comes through in the work itself because people can sense that, that there is something beyond your own ego or your own needs that drive you to write a certain thing, whether it's a book or an essay or, or even a, an, an article, there's something beyond just people saying, oh, that person wrote this fantastic piece, blah, 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 just to make the difference. You know, I mean, that's, as writers, I feel that's part of our duty is, is to make a difference, whether it's a teeny tiny little difference in our own little town or some big difference that people worldwide recognize. But, you know, I mean, we are communicators and, and we should in one way or the other, communicate, you know, the, the stories. And, and they're not our stories. They're the stories of the people in whatever fashion we do it. You know, I'm, I'm curious, is there, you know, among your novels, is there a character that has stayed with you long after you finished writing or, or one that you're thinking, oh, I wonder, wonder where that character is now or, or what is that character doing now? I'm almost like they're real people. Yeah. Um, I have to say there isn't, I mean, they have their life or they had their lives, their fictional lives. And, um, there, there, there was a, uh, a sequel that I, that I started to write to birds and fall the book about, um, you know, the plane, there was a plane crash off Nova Scotia and it was about the survivors and 
how they coped with their grief. And um, while I was writing that book, or in the course of writing, I won't call it a sequel because it was part of the section, part of what I wrote on the, this book was this after afterlife section, a parallel life of all the people on that plane about what happened afterwards and where they were. And um, I put that, I knew that that wasn't gonna end up in the book. It was just something that I felt I had to do <laughs> to, to just imagine what was happening. So in that sense, those lives that were cut short in my mind go on in this kind of fictional afterworld. And if I was able to split myself into many pieces, I probably would write that book because it still kind of excites me about uh, what happens after a tragic, violent death um, and where are these people living now? And, and um, you know, it was like sort of this whole purgatory science fiction world that, that I had created. Um, but I'm, I'll never write that book. <laughs> I just won't. Never say never, you know, as soon as you say that for some reason, then it becomes, becomes one of those compelling things. Um, one question I always yeah. like to, to ask it at the end of, of the show is how do you define success as a writer? How will you know if you're successful or is that one of those unreachable goals that we just keep going after, but if we don't feel that we're ever going to attain them. Wow. Um, I mean, what springs to mind without giving it a lot of thought is, is, um, is the idea of, of, uh, because I'm, because I'm a cheesemaker and a farmer, um, is does it feed you? And then if it first it has to feed you, and then it has to feed others. And that's kind of what what uh, I do when I'm not writing. I mean, the other, you know, that's the writing is say the left hand and the farming is the right hand, which is to say both your milking goats and making cheese is is an art form, just as valid as writing novels. Uh, you know, you're dealing with rumination, you're dealing with raw material, the world, and you're then through a sort of casuistry making something out of it that is consumable, you know, whether it's a novel or whether it's, it's a tome. We call our cheese tome and tome comes from the word book, you know, tome, and it means a volume in, in French. And so it's, it's, and it's something that I play with in the goat and goat song about how you know, a book and a cheese and, and the life of, of writing and the life of making cheese, the similarities and the, all about pastoralist culture and literature and the connections. But so to answer your question in maybe not such a long winded way, so, 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 it, so it is like this thing that, that provides, and I think you're successful if you're nourished by what you do. And then the real success is if you nourish someone else maybe that's the success you're looking for. The other kind of success that comes from the world, you know, either comes or doesn't. And, um, you know, we all have egos and we all want that. Um, whether it happens has, has kind of nothing to do with us, I think. Yeah, no, no, I, th I think you're right. And it is, it, you know, it's a wonderful thing when, when you hear from a reader who says, you know, I read your book and it touched me or it opened my eyes or it made me think about things in a different way. I mean, that's, 
sure, we'd all like the big checks, we'd all like the big awards, but when you know that you have connected, you know, for however long that that connection mm-hmm. lasts, you know, then it, then it makes it worthwhile. It makes all that effort worthwhile because so much of what we do, the whole time we're doing it, and even after we turn it in and it hits the streets, hits the bookshelves, we don't actually know. We don't, we don't know if it worked. We think it worked. We hope it worked. But we don't know if it worked until, until somebody reflects back to us and says, yes, yes, it, it worked. I, you know, it, it's, um, and, that, and that's, I mean, there's all kinds of writing, but, you know, I'm, I'm with you. It, it, has to, it has to feed our soul and then feed, feed the souls of the readers to, to really be, to really feel like this time I got it. You know, and, and then the next three could be duds, but at mm-hmm. least you can say this one I did, you know, this one I'm proud of. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I'm so grateful that you took time away from your goats and, and your farm and everything to be part of the podcast. This was this was fascinating. The certainly North was it was an incredible, incredible story. And, um, you know, I'm I'm. I was so lucky to be able to get an advanced copy and read it. And um, yes, it is definitely, I have a specific place on my bookshelf for the kind of books that I know I'm going to go back to. And yours is now on that, on that particular shelf, you're, you're, you've now become a rerun for me, you know, because it was just, and, and I oh, think good. also it's the kind of book that each time you will read it again, you will learn something new, you know, because it was so, so intense and and the the characters were were so well done that each time you read it it's it's like sitting down with a family member that you don't know very well and every time you talk to them you learn something new i i feel like that is what north is going to at least offer to me the opportunity to learn more about people that i know nothing about because you know i'm a white woman living in a town that's you know i'm sure there's refugees here but i'm a little isolated myself so and of course with the pandemic we've all been a little isolated but um but thanks so much i'm 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 very um very appreciative that you took the time to be on the show well thank you and thanks for the words about the book oh well deserved trust me and i'm sure you know that yourself 